0: Hey guys,
1: anything new? No. Reporting live from the bunker.
2: (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com/slash audible. This episode is brought to you by Code School. Code School offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com/slash code school. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to proxpn.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 124 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Curtis McHale. Hola. Reuben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking about client launch development, or launching clients' apps once we have done them. It's kind of interesting. We were talking a little bit about what, what we meant by uh, launch development earlier, but is there something that you do when your client is getting ready to launch something that you built?
3: Well, I'll book a dance party sometimes first, depending on the client, right? <laughs> yeah. Strobe light, color
2: organ. <laughs> i and think it depends
3: it, it depends too on the on is it was it a good client do you want to work with them again or was this a project you finished and were like i doubt like this it wasn't the right client for me or they were just a terrible client right because you may do like i do different things for each mm-hmm. style and outside of actually you know turning the features on so yeah so if it's a
2: good client you make it so that they can't deploy on their own so that they call you up right never oh my
0: god <laughs> it, it, you starting even many years ago, I, I would just like be shocked that there were people who really did that, who, if, you, yeah. you know, if a client wanted, I would sometimes come to these people who, uh, as new clients and they would say, oh, well, we were kind of happy with the people we were using, except for this one little thing. Anytime we wanted to change anything on our website, we had to go through them. So, you know, we want to change one word and it becomes a change request and we have to go through them. And, and I just was shocked that people would put up with this, but they just didn't know better.
2: Yeah, I've seen that where it was like language in the contract, and I've seen it where it was just technical expertise or lack thereof, and
0: yeah, in the way, I, it's like, come on, don't be I a douchebag, okay?
3: Contract. Oh my God. Like for actual deployment process, I do set up something with, say, Git branches, and I use Beanstalk to deploy that many of my clients can't handle on their own, so I do that on my own, but they have their own FTP, like they, it's their site, they can do whatever they want with it. And then I'm building on WordPress, so they can also do whatever they want with the admin of WordPress, right?
2: Yeah. One thing I'll talk through a a situation I'm in right now, specifically with deploying and stuff. I have a client that is using Instructure Canvas, and they needed it updated. And so, you know, I spent like six hours rebasing crap onto their custom setup. And then I went and set it up on a VPS so that they had kind of a staging setup that they could see before they actually launched, uh, which is relevant, I guess, to this conversation is having, you know, having a staging setup so they can verify changes. Anyway, I tried to walk my client through managing the deployment through Git because that's more or less how Canvas works. That's how they tell you to set it up in the first place. And so, you know, when you have changes you just do a git pull on your git repository and they copy the files into place. But with his situation, you know, he has a custom branch in git. And if you're if you're not a technical person, essentially what it is is within the repository, within the place where we have all the code, there's a separate branch or fork that has the differences in the code between the canonical version and his version. Anyway, so I have to pull that down and then copy the files over. You know, and then there are some other steps that have to be run in order to get everything set up properly. And so I'm trying to walk him through this process and it's all command line stuff and he's trying to figure out how to do all this stuff from his Windows machine and shell into the server and stuff. And it's just it's just hard. And so I'm trying to think of a better way to make it, you know, so that he can just push a button and deploy it. Well and I think that's
1: the thing. Like there's a difference between Letting your client have access to everything and then the client actually being able to do it. Yeah. Um, with my clients, I make sure they have access to everything. So like literally if I get hit by a bus or if I'm gone, they can do stuff. It might be hard and they might have to install stuff or maybe even hire someone who knows the technical aspects to do it. Mm -hmm. But they have all the tools there for them to use. They just they might not know which end of the wrench to pick up type thing. Right.
3: Yeah, and I do the same thing. I give my clients access to Beanstalk because that's where all their code would be. So if I got hit by a bus, they could, you know, run with it, get someone else to run with it. Chuck's asked me in the background. Beanstalk is uh, like a Git repository, but it also does deployment. So you can set it up on a branch to automatically send stuff over to your servers, and then you can roll back that way, because Mm. WordPress doesn't do well with stuff like automated (coughs) deployment, like Capistrano. Beanstalk does a lot of that for you. They also have a service that works with, like, GitHub and Bitbucket as well, that's just the deployment portion. I don't remember what it's called, though. But they have the same service for non, like, if you don't want to use their Git stuff as well, if you're in Beanstalk, or, sorry, if you're in uh, Bitbucket or GitHub. Yeah,
2: that makes sense. So I'm, I'm looking at writing them a deploy script of some kind, you know, Capistrano or something, So that essentially, you know, worst case scenario, they have to get into the server and then run it. So that's one thing. Do you guys usually set up staging servers before they
3: do the actual launch? In 90% of cases, yes. There's the odd project that's super tiny that isn't going to crush the site if something's not quite right. Like, say, an admin-only feature that just helps their workflow, then we may not if it's small enough. But if I'm spending over $1,000 worth of time on it, then there's a staging server involved as well. Right. I mean, you definitely want to have a staging server at some
0: point. This, this is one of those lessons that I've learned the hard way in some ways where I would say, oh, it's such a small site, we really need it. But eventually, you're going to want to show them what's going on or test the next version of things. And so not having a staging server at some point is just going to hurt.
3: Yeah, and I develop locally even on those little ones. Like I'm developing it all locally. I've usually actually screencasted how it works for them so they can see it once. And then they can say, "Oh, this isn't going to work because of these three things," or "That looks great," which is usually what they say when it's small enough. That looks great. Let's get this on the site now.
1: And I've actually gone a different route. I used to do staging stuff. Like I'd have, you know, a completely identical server and deploy stuff up there. I'd work. So I'd have my machine. I'd have a deployment one, and then I'd have or a staging one. Then I'd have the actual production deployment. So there's like at least three copies. And recently, I've been getting away from the staging for the apps and stuff that I'm working on. It's so much work, so much setup to do. And the benefits, there's just not worth it anymore. Most of the work I'm doing now is very fast and it's like, I can get it into production and people are using it and they'll know within five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour that stuff's not right and we can roll it back. And that, that happens because I built up a lot of the automation around it and my clients are very quick with the feedback and getting back to me on things. You know, it's, there's, there's some tools out there where you can kind of hide things. So. New things go onto the server live, but like regular users can't get to it. And so you can kind of select like your power users or maybe like your client's admin accounts so they can use it and test it out on the live server. And I found that works pretty good. A lot of those are called like feature flippers or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I just found for staging, like the apps that I've worked on in the past, like it was it was a whole nother process to manage the st- staging. And it felt like I was pushing code up there, and then the clients were like, "Okay, well we reviewed it a little bit, but it might work a little bit different in production." And it just the value wasn't there. Um And one client I had, they were using a one of the top tier Rails hosts, and I I don't know how many hundreds of dollars they were spending a month just on their staging servers. Like, it was insane.
2: Yeah, I think you have a valid point there where if you have quick feedback and not major changes, then the way that you're talking about doing things definitely makes sense. In this case, they hadn't updated the app for a year and a half, and so by rolling those changes in, it
1: was a fairly
2: major upgrade, and so I felt like I needed the staging server.
1: Yeah. And I think you have to be flexible with that. Like I've done some development where I'm actually like doing all the development work on a remote server. Like it works as my desktop, I guess. And there's been times where like the client is like back and forth on a UI or how a UX flow works. And what they'd actually do is I would set them up. So they would connect to my development machine and see kind of a demo of the code. I would be editing it at live underneath them so they could compare how it works completely. And so, you know, by the end of that session, they'd be like, Oh yeah, we got it perfect. Now let's let's lock this in and then move on. And so it was kind of a staging server in a way that the client was poking at it, but it wasn't an official one. It was like a temporary like for this time, like we're gonna use it. And that that works good. I mean being able to do that when you need it was nice because it was a more of a higher risk thing than just standard bug fixes or something.
0: I I think that having a staging server is one of those things that it's important to Educate clients about to show them that that it'll improve the reliability of their software. It'll improve their ability. I mean, as Eric just said, to to be involved in the process of developing it as well, and they're just going to get a better product out of it. But not everyone. In fact, I would say most of the companies, especially the small ones that I deal with, don't think about this at the beginning. And so it's part of the process of talking to them and, and helping them to figure out how is this going to become a reliable integral part of their business.
1: Yeah, I guess that's a way to look at it. I mean, it's I see a staging server as a tool. And the tool is used to increase collaboration, especially on the QA and like, you know, confirming this works. If the company is able to collaborate without that, you don't have to pay the cost of having it. But some companies like I know some, like I would force them to have a staging server because they would never look at it until it got in production. And it would sit there for weeks before they discovered that, oh, our database isn't saving anything or something really bad. And that's because there's not a strong collaborative relationship there. Yeah. How do you build that kind of strong collaborative relationship? Slowly, (laughs) carefully. I mean, it, it depends on the client, I guess. Like, uh, you know, going into like how technical they are, how collaborative they kind of can feel. And I think a lot of it is just, I, like I talk about a lot, like, you know, you're building trust with the client. Like instead of you disappearing, doing your work, coming to them with the entire piece, you come to them for a little bit, get their input on it, take their input, actually use it, maybe even, you know, change it around a little bit and bring it back to them. And they kind of feel like, oh, this this guy knows me. He knows what I really want, and he's able to tweak it. And he has his own experiences, and so that trust builds up, and that's kind of that's the foundation for collaboration. Mm-hmm. It also depends on the client. I mean, I some clients that I know them kind of outside of the project, and they're great at collaborating, but on a specific project, they might not be good because it's not a high priority project, or they're pulled in other directions, and so they don't have the time to put in to really collaborate.
2: One thing that I'm really curious about, and this is something that I've seen off and on with some of my clients, and by by off and on, either it comes up or sometimes it just doesn't work out, is that in some cases, I'm a tech guy, but I have more experience with launches than they do. And so what happens is, is they start heading down the road of getting ready to launch their product. And, you know, I'm trying to give them suggestions, you know, do these things, you know, build a mailing list or, you know, whatever and they kind of just see me as the tech guy. And so they're not so interested in my opinion, even though I feel like I could help out in that camp too. Is there a way to make that better? Because some folks get it, and it's like, oh, that's a good idea, I'll do that. And other folks, it's like, okay, whatever.
3: I think that steps way back to how you position yourself at the beginning, right? Are you coming in as just the guy who programs, or are you coming in as the business consultant who solves problems, who happens to also write code? Right. right. I, I'm if they that. hire you as the business consultant who writes some code too, then they're hiring to listen to you. If they're hiring you as the guy who writes the code they told you to write and make some technical decisions, then they want you to write your code. Mm. Yeah, just because I'm, I'm working on a project now. We're just finished. The
0: first launch, actually, of a product. And I was sort of insulated from the company. This guy knows the CTO. He's actually a CTO, like, on a contract. But basically, I talked to him. I never talked to the company at all. And he talked to them on my behalf. Now, it looks like he's probably going to be stepping aside because they hired a full-time CTO, and then I'll start talking to them. And then I think the relationship will change because they'll start to understand that I have more to offer than just coding. But for now, I mean, I've been presented as the coder, and that's all they think of me as. Uh, And that is a little frustrating to me. It's also frustrating to me that the current acting CTO keeps saying to me, oh, it's you're so lucky you're not talking to them, because then you're involved in all the product development stuff and some of the politics. I keep thinking, actually I like being involved in that. And I think it's useful
1: to be for me to be involved yeah. in that. Yeah, so positioning is important with that.
2: So on the day of the launch, and again I, I know we're talking a lot of the type of work that we do, but you know, I think there are some parallels and correlations to other industries. If there is a problem when you launch, are you basically on call or do you just do you tell them to plan ahead and use a staging server or or how do you how do you handle that? Depends on the
1: launch, like if What kind of launch it is and how big. Like, um, if it's like, you know, a big public, like where our business is starting on this day, then it's, you're pretty much going to be on call or close to being on call. I've had days where I would take it off from business and just do the email and administrative stuff so I could jump on the phone or jump on chat or whatever with them in case problems came up. There's other launches, like if it's an internal launch where it's just in the company, you know, you can do certain things, you can roll it out differently. Um, if it's like you're just launching like not a full like website, but like a features on it, launches are typically not that big of a deal. Like you might actually launch the changes like on a Tuesday, but it isn't actually promoted to the users to like next week. So it kind of gives you time to kind of get used to it, make sure everything's good. You know, so there's there's a lot there. And some launches like if it's like internal tools or just pr- like improvements to existing systems, I don't even consider them really launches. It's just a release like, hey, here's an update.
3: Don't yeah, when I'm coming up to launch, I've already that. tested like four or five times, right? I tested it. I have usually actually spun up a quick secondary server to make sure all the launch stuff is automated. I've done it twice locally, and I know that like the launch is essentially me pushing the code and everything else is automated past that.
0: I would say don't launch on a Friday or even on a Thursday unless you want to run the risk of working on it over the weekend.
3: I never um, launch Fridays. I had one I actually had one client who said we always launch Fridays and I said you need to find someone else. I'm not launching Friday ever. That is a only a recipe for me to work all weekend.
1: But once again, it depends. Like I actually found for internal apps, launching on Friday is nice because it's just the select users who are working over the weekend to test it out before the big rush when everyone's on the work week. Yep. So it depends on who you know, who's using it. Like that's I think it should be never launched when you have a high level of activity on the site or whatever the product is. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah, the companies
2: that I worked for, we usually did our launches in the evening, and it was usually in the middle of the week. And the reason was that we would have fewer users overnight, and so we could monitor it. And then if we were comfortable with it, you know, we had our automated systems that would report errors and things like that. I guess we can talk about those in a minute, but we would be made aware if there was a major problem. And, uh, you know, so we just watch it for a little bit with diminished traffic and if we wound up being up all night fixing it then we just didn't have to come in thursday morning it's like hey everybody you know go sleep we're gonna buy you all something nice you know kind of thing so or
1: you spent the night under your cube thursday and
2: you know went home thursday night yeah So, I mean, that's definitely a a thing that, that I've done. And yeah, usually it's, it's overnight with a work day the next day so that we can make up the time at home, sleeping or whatever we need to do to make up for the fact that we were there till 2 a.m. because something went wrong. And that's, yeah, and I often
3: end up launching at the end of my day most of my clients are in eastern time so if i launch at like you know three o'clock it's already six o'clock their time so it's in their Mm -hmm. evening time and a lot of the stuff i'm working on it's a business a business-centered site so most of their users are not on it at you know 6 p.m eastern time
0: yeah i definitely take advantage of the seven hour difference between israel and the eastern u.s to uh launch things in a softer way and try it out before too many people get on there But I would say in terms of all this, I mean, all of us seem to agree that launches will have bugs, they will have hiccups. Again, I think this is an important thing to talk to clients about that they shouldn't expect, oh, we're launching, you're done testing all your software, you've done all this testing, great, it'll be super smooth. It might be super smooth, but it would be wise for us to assume that there will be problems and have contingency plans.
3: Yeah. So here's here's a question though, Ruben. What do you do? I dealt with a client today, and they said, "Oh, you know, what do? You, how do you? Can you guarantee that our launch will go smoothly? Because this other agency did." And so, what what would you say to that, <laughs> Chuck? That's what I started with. I actually laughed a lot. Right. I can see the future. That's what I said. I I laughed and then actually said, "Well, they're lying to you."
0: <laughs> sorry. Right. I mean, I, I I might couch it in slightly more diplomatic terms. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Maybe. Ever, I said they're lying. Ever to you, so slightly.
0: Straight up. Right, right. Even though that that is an accurate way to describe it. But I think I might say, I don't think I would ever make such a claim because like software is inherently complex and buggy, and until it actually launches, we can't guarantee anything. But yeah, oh. basically they're
1: lying. <laughs> I mean, here's how you make that claim, and this is what I was talking about earlier, is you launch the software weeks earlier and you've been testing it live, so your launch is just marketing that, hey, we have new stuff that you might have not have seen yet. And that's how you do it. You get the risky stuff out there. You get people, you know, a select amount of people using it, get it working good. And then you bring in, you know, the 90% of the rest of the the user base. And so, I found that works really good for the, the stuff I've worked on where there's a large amount of users.
0: I like that. And I can buy that for a totally new product. But if you're doing an upgrade, it gets a little trickier. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, there is technical challenges, and depending on how stuff works, like it can get hard. But if you look at it that way, I mean, I look at it as, okay, what are the risky things? What are the things that we can isolate in a way that it's not going to affect the rest of the system that we can launch earlier and get them out there? I mean, it's all about reducing the total risk, and that might be by spreading it out over a longer term than just, you know, one second that you hit the button.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I, Yeah. I, I do definitely like that approach. I know that GitHub and Etsy and some of the other ones out there yeah, they, they push the new features out with a flag on that says, you know, show this to a certain percentage of users or show this to users that have
1: this flag set or meet this other criteria. Yeah, the feature flags, so the term is. Yeah. I've done it with clients where basically, like, everything changed. Like, it was a web app, but the entire web app design changed, the domain name changed the underlying architecture did a major shift and we did that by using different domain names and my client and like the developer team and some of the the like power users we all set up like custom dns routes so like we would go to the website we wanted to and it would point to a different server and so we were able to actually really test it you know do some kind of not live but kind of like the users would use it and get back to us really quickly like feedback sessions and we got most of the major stuff out and we actually got to test like okay let's roll out this big update multiple times cuz we were able to just completely wipe out that new server and start it from scratch. And so we were basically we had confidence in our process, we had confidence in the code that the bugs that were going to come up were going to be minor or we weren't going to be able to find them without having a lot of people using it.
0: Have have you guys tried things like Vagrant or Docker for releasing in a more stable way? Or, or even Chef or Puppet, where you don't reuse servers, you just roll out a new server each time?
1: I use Puppet. Most of these stuff have used Puppet to kind of do the automation. Uh, I'm looking at using Docker for this. Docker and Vagrant are kind of interesting because they're just the way they work. They might be good, but you have to be careful. And I think it requires discipline on the part of the team. But yeah, I mean, that's that's what I mean. Like, there's tools, like you can get really deep into technical stuff to like, Make it complete automated and like the continuous deployment idea where you make a change and 10 seconds later, it's actually on the production servers, like how Etsy has it set up or whatever. But I mean, that introduces some risk and you just have to be, you know, make sure your client's comfortable with that. And then there's some projects that it doesn't matter. Like it's an internal app that you can just SSH in and rsync it or just copy it across through FTP. And that's good enough for a deployment. Yeah. I think one thing that helped, I haven't updated, but I actually have in my company wiki, I have a page of like, when doing a site launch, here's things to check. So it's like a checklist of is DNS set up how it's supposed to be, especially if it's like moving stuff around, is the DNS TTL turned down so you can move quickly? Do you have RSS feeds set up? Are there cron jobs set up? Like, Is there a privacy policy? Are you going to be doing advertising? So are your landing pages set up? Is the support email working? Do you have like all the, the launch marketing stuff? Like if you're going to do a blog or any of that stuff, it's basically a checklist that with any launch, I can go through of any client and say like, yes, this is done. No, this isn't done or no, this doesn't matter for what we're launching here. Um, and I give a copy of this to my client so they can kind of see like kind of what you're talking about earlier, Chuck, of like, I'm not just a coder, like I know analytics stuff. I know marketing stuff. I know there's more to it than just putting code on a server.
2: Yep. I want to go back to the the Chef discussion just to answer Reuben's question in the way that I handle things. In a lot of cases, I have a basic setup for mostly Rails and Rails-related stuff. And so um, I just add the recipes in, and yeah, I can spin up a new server and then customize it for the client. And I can also, you know, add recipes or settings or different things into Chef to make it work. But I found that in a lot of cases, beyond the basic recipe, it's actually not worth the effort to do it. So I just plug in Nginx passenger or whatever and then
1: just run with it.
2: But it is nice to be able to spin up a server, a brand new server and just try it out.
1: Yeah. And, um, like I said a while back ago, like I was working on my desktop environment was like a remote VPS server. And that's, you know, like I'd have clients come in and demo stuff and that was set up through Puppet. And there were times where my, you know, as a developer, stuff kind of just gets sideways like things just get installed weird or whatever and normally like you would have to debug it figure out what it was wrong find out you installed one thing you shouldn't have and it screwed everything up in that case i actually just deleted the entire server and started over because the time to actually you know debug and figure out what happened to my development environment was less than the time it would to just build a new server and start from scratch and because i had to run the application it was in a way kind of this you know deployment of oh, this one server got screwed up, I'm going to throw it away and start over. And so it's it's the same idea, but it was used in a development sense instead of a, a live site sense.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, as part of the prep for launching or talking to people about launching, I don't think I've done this very much, but have you ever talked to them about what sort of bugs people might encounter or technical support or what sorts of issues they should expect?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, it depends on the changes. Like if it's, you know, if you're doing like a lot of backend changes, you know, you're going to talk to them about, there might be downtime as the database gets upgraded or there might be data issues that have come to support of like, you know, we lost, you know, it looks like the, like the user, end user lost data, but it's there just not showing up. Um, if it's like design changes or whatever, then, you know, you kind of bring up like your support's going to be burdened by people not being able to click in the right place, the same place as they used to. They can't find this menu item they're looking for. So yeah, we, we at least talk about it. So like, you know, they're prepared for it. We don't actually do like any kind of, you know, hard physical documentation or instruction manual of, Version 2.1 rollout or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that this, this project that I'm working on now where one of the questions was well, in terms of since we're using Rails, so there are migrations to change the database. The question was, wait a second, isn't it possible that there's going to be some point in time when the application will be upgraded and the database won't be migrated to the new version? I said, yeah, it's possible, but probably not a big worry. And, you know, probably it'll be fine. And he said, okay, that's fine as long as I know. But, you know, you just have to sort of talk to people up front about someone might encounter this sort of issue.
2: Yeah, I tend not to go and say, hey, here's where the issues may be. I will do that if I know something's not completely baked. And so I'll just give them an indication. But, I mean, for the most part, it's like, look, I've done everything I can to make sure that there's not going to be a problem. And uh, if there is one, here's what you do. You know, here's how you find me. Yeah, Yeah, I usually
3: set downtime expectations, right? But normally it's like, yeah, I might have like 60 seconds where there's... A little bit of downtime or a user might get a random issue and then past that, it'll all be good.
1: I actually said, like, I mean, cause I'm coming from a system administrator background, like I'll usually ask, depending on the app, like for 30 minutes or 60 minutes of downtime, uh, larger if it's like big moves, the system might be down for only, you know, a minute at the most while, you know, stuff is getting changed. But I tell them like during this time, expect it to be unreliable, expect stuff to happen because I might have to deploy, find a bug, have to fix it, redeploy. Or like Ruben was saying, like, you know, there's database changes, so the code might be there, but the data is still getting upgraded or a whole number of things. But I try to use a window of like, here's the time I need to get the stuff out there. And I do kind of a smoke test, make sure stuff works, um, you know, kind of the last test before I tell people. Um, and then when I'm done, I'm like, hey, it's out there, it's done. Or if I run out of window, which has happened uh, once or twice, I tell them, hey, I had to back it out. There's too many things. We need to go back into development to fix these.
2: So do you guys use any kind of error reporting, send something to your pager, whatever kind of thing? Humming pigeons and monkeys. In that order? (laughs) You're
0: you're assuming we have uh, have errors. Yeah, like really. I
2: know.
0: And and get with the program. Now we just use flying monkeys. We've merged the two.
3: i don't have anything that's emergency (laughs) like that but i do build in uh into most of my work a logging routine so that if we get failure cases that are kind of unbelievable like if we map miss everything else there's then it logs kind of everything that happened in the system at the time and i don't have those email me or anything i would have to go check them
1: And i think it depends on the app and everything i mean you know curtis you're doing wordpress stuff which you have to build that yourself versus most of the other ones here. Like we're doing rails, which it comes with logging and there's half a dozen or a dozen different automated error reporting software as a service description. So like, you know, we can give people our credit card and basically get a lot of that for free. Um, but I think yeah. it comes with like what the app is too. Like what are the needs? What are the, f- what are the possible failure points? And if you can't fix it and work around it, how can you at least be notified when a failure happens?
3: Yeah. And say I, like I use a pre-built class for WordPress that allows you to enter log entries really quick. So I basically just wrap an if statement and throw in my logs, right? But yeah, there's no automated systems that I'm aware of to capture WordPress logs.
0: I don't have anything that like, you know, calls me or pages me or SMSs me or anything. But I've certainly additioned a log files. So uh, New Relic uh, is pretty good about that stuff. You can go in and you know, take a look and see how many errors you've got or how bad things are. And so when something first launches for the first few hours, I'll be a little obsessive about checking that, checking the errors and checking the server in a bunch of different ways to make sure that nothing is going horribly wrong.
1: I'm laughing off mic right here because my phone has gone off three times during the show with PagerDuty telling me I have server problems. Mm-hmm. It's not my problem. Um and it's not really a big server, but on the other end, like I have, you know, the system admin level infrastructure setup and this is my own personal servers like this isn't even client stuff but i have stuff on the server like all the logs get sent to a centralized logger that will notify me if it sees like you know a thousand attempts to sshn at once or something i have nagios which connects to all of my servers all of my services and checks like is disk use as good is the site up is there too many users logged in is there processes crashing are the database servers you know any everything i could think of and then I have a system that checks Nagio. So I have someone checking the checking system. Um, and then I have pager duty. that if Nagio says something's wrong, I get emails, phone calls, SMS messages, and it continues until I say it's fixed. Um, and if Nagio sees like, oh, you fixed it, but it's still broken, it starts to cycle over again. Um and this is my own personal stuff. Like I've set this kind of thing up for one client and then I actually hooked a second client up into my system while we were launching just so that they had you know, an extra security blanket. But I've done this and then there's like New Relic, uh, which will watch some things. There's Honey Badger I use for error tracking. So if there's a bunch of errors on a site, the whole team gets emailed. Um you can even have stuff go into like team chat, stuff like that. So, I mean, it depends on what you're launching and kind of like how close you want to be to it. In the past, in the Rails community, there used to be a plugin that would email you every error. So if you launch and you have a thousand users all hitting the same error, you just got a thousand emails. Um, so like that used to be like the best thing to do. And I actually still use it on some projects that, you know, don't have a high volume, but you got to fit your monitoring tools with what you want to monitor. Yep.
3: Yeah, I know Beanstalk does automatically send me if there's a problem with the deploy that it has, then it will email me that there's a problem with the deploy and it actually rolls itself back at that point too to the last stable one. Yeah,
2: I I use a lot of the same tools that Eric mentioned, you know, Honey Badger and New Relic. I'm not so keen on Nagios just because I'd have to set it up and maintain it myself, but yeah, a lot of those other tools are nice and, you know, they'll notify you via email or however you want to do it to,
1: you know, in order to uh, keep that information straight. Yeah. And the Nagios is because it's, it's a pain to get set up. But once it's set up, adding new checks or systems or services to it is very easy. And so for my stuff, I have it set up and then I plug that stuff in. And like I said, for my client, like for them, their app was very similar to like the other things I already had in there. It's so like 98% of their configuration was just copying a file across and then putting it on a server that I know already works and it was just you know like i told them like yeah i got it's in my now, i guess i will be actually i'll call myself when something goes down so you don't have to worry about it as much and then i would forward emails off to them or call them and you know help them wake up their team mm-hmm.
2: so when you set this stuff up do you set it up so that it will notify the client like if you set this kind of stuff up for the the client um, it I, depends yeah I it
3: depends what we on we said the technical earlier. right depends on how technical they are
1: I give them access, like I actually, with the exception of that Nagio thing, I make sure my client gets New Relic, I make sure they sign up for Honey Badger, all that. So they own the account, and they they let me in. So they have access to get notified if they want, and some of them will get you know the first few notifications to see how it works, but then they have the control to turn it off if it's annoying them or it's not relevant to them.
0: I had the opposite problem. I had one client where I set it up to uh, send them some error, error reports, error messages. So they would, they would get email every time there was a problem on the site, but it wasn't just problems on the site, it was if we had some sort of a, you know, PHP script that tried to break into the site and it encountered a URL you know, on a real site, it's not going to do anything, it's just going to give you an error of some sort. So they would then get the reported error and email me and say, oh my god, what's going on with the site? i have to explain to them, okay, those 10 URLs, not something to worry about. So at a certain point, I feel like just was was like the little boy who cried wolf because they were so worried for so much of the time in the end to try out to be a big nothing. So now they never ask me about any of the errors.
1: One thing I did about that was I was getting all the errors for my client, like they didn't want them. And I would put that into our bug tracker and I'd have the full error. So I'd put it in there and then I would explain, put an update. It's like, okay, this is an error because of X, Y, Z. It only happens when there's a blue moon and Mercury is in retrograde, whatever. And I would track also how many times it occurs. And based on, you know, they can see when the update's, they could look at it and say like, okay, this is something that never occurs. It might be kind of annoying, but it's not hurting the data. We're just going to ignore it. Versus something that like every user is getting this error. They can't use the app. And so it ha- it's just like real bugs. Like they can actually prioritize them, put budget into it. It's like, you know, we can estimate it. It goes through the whole process like, you know, any other development feature. And I found that was great because it's transparent. Like they could see the exception. They could see how often it was occurring, see the impact, and they could make the business decision of what to do with it. That's a great idea.
2: So Eric posted a subtopic uh, aborting a launch.
1: Yeah, so this is something I've had to do a few times, but it's also something I see a lot of when I work with other teams they don't think about ahead of time. But having a process, even something simple or a script or any way to back out of a launch that goes bad, um, I've had launches go bad because the code was bad and it wasn't tested correctly. I've had it go bad because there's some weird network connection at a, like OS provider. And so we can't download the things we need to install or just things completely out of our control. But the problem happens when there's no process to abort a launch or to back out of it. And you're kind of stuck with like this halfway, not functional system. And I think that's something that everyone needs to think about, at least have a short discussion and figure out like, if we do need to abort, what do we do?
3: Yeah. And most of the time for my WordPress projects, it's not data migration really happening or I've automated that portion. It's the code. So I like really just deactivate a plugin usually and that gets us back to where we were before. Yeah. I
2: haven't, I've had this happen as an employee working on teams and yeah, you know, we just, we made it pretty easy to back stuff back out. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot to say on the topic because I haven't had to abort any releases for any of my clients occasionally there's a bug
1: but i usually wind up fixing the bug as opposed to aborting the release yeah and that's that might be one thing is uh, i talked about how i have a deployment window if it's the problems are minor it might be better just to do another bug fix deployment like right away than it would be to roll it back and start over but that's like that's a conversation i have with my clients of like you know if, if i can't fix it and i think my window is actually i'm not going to be able to do it all this is what i'm going to do i'm going to roll it back and then we'll, re- we'll schedule it for another time or whatever
3: yeah, I find the bugs that do crop up are usually ultimately fairly benign. No matter what the client thinks, they're fairly benign.
1: Yeah. The big ones, like I said in chat, like I've actually, we were in the process of deploying and a, the host went down, like something went down on their network storage. So when you, you could log in, but anytime you ran a command or whatever, the command line would hang for minutes on end. And obviously when you're running a deployment script and putting in a couple thousand files on the server, that doesn't quite work. And I've had problems like that or problems, you know, the database upgrade didn't go smoothly and so you have to get a backup. Like it's it's those weird things, like, you know, you thought you tested, but just something like an a spare electron jumped a piece of RAM and all of a sudden everything crashes. Yep.
2: Any other aspects of uh client launches that we should talk
3: about before we wrap up? Well, what about all the soft stuff? Like we've talked a little bit about it, but like even once I tie up a launch, what do you do after you've tied up a launch? It's all good, the client's happy.
1: Depends on the contract. I mean, most of mine a launch is just, you know, a small event in the contract. Like I have, I continue on doing next development or maintenance or whatever. But if your contract is like basically to launch the product, and once the launch is done, your contract's over. Um, that's a different circumstance. Like you got to figure out like closing out the contract or if there's warranties or stuff like that. But for me, and you know, I've been kind of making, making launch an even smaller event as possible is launch is just, you know, another task that has to be done for the project.
3: Okay. So what about if you hit a milestone? I know for me. When I say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to launch a, like a product configuration suite for someone coming up and sort of like how you build an Apple laptop, right? You can pick your options. And once we get that point, there's lots of other things we'll do. But once we get to that point, I actually circle back with them and I send them a questionnaire about the project. Like, how was the launch? How did the overall project management go? You know, if there's one thing we could do to improve it, what would that be for you guys? And that's part of my launch sequence as well.
0: Well, yeah, I mean... It, most of the time, it's hard for me to remember a time when this did not happen, although I'm sure it did. But as Eric said, the launch is like just the first milestone in a, a longer series of, I guess, smaller launches or smaller projects or tickets that we're going to take care of. So actually today with this launch that we just did for this, uh, this company that I mentioned before. So. The guy who's the acting CTO asked me, so are you interested in moving forward and doing more work with them? I said, absolutely, yes. And to me, I thought it was obvious that I was interested uh, in continuing, you know, nice, interesting client, nice, interesting work. But he said, look, the chemistry doesn't always work. So I wanted to give you the chance to evaluate that. And I actually appreciated that.
3: Yeah, I also do that on my side, too. I just have my own kind of questionnaire, like, do they still hit the clients? My ideal client, are they still in that? If not, are they so kind of so far down the thing that I need to cut them or are they you know, kind of in the middle where they're decent, but not amazing.
1: Yeah, I do that. But that's more of when a contract's wrapping up, not necessarily a launch event. I've had a couple projects in the past where it wasn't a launch, like, like what we're talking about, but it was my contract was to build a piece of software for them. And I built it, gave it to them, like, actually, like, you know, sent them a zip file of the software. And that was the end of the contract, you know, like, so like, I followed up with them to make sure like, you know, there's no bugs or if they needed any last minute changes. But that was very low key. Like they had it, they could review it on their own and get back to me. It was more of closing out the contract than an actual launch.
3: Yeah. And so I guess like my launch will be the first contract with this client will be for the product configuration stuff. My second, like a net future contract will be other things that would be, again, I'd circle back with them about the project management because that also helps you be better, right? Circling back with them what was good, what was bad. If we could do one thing to improve for you, what
1: would it be?
2: All right, well, any other things that we should uh, talk about before we get into the picks?
1: Like I mentioned a couple of times, like have a process. It might be useful is come up with your own like ideal process ahead of time of like, this is how a launch should go. Here's a checklist and go to a client, give that to them, say, here's here's what I like to use for my launch process. We're free to change it, but this is basically like the template I give to all clients. That way you can have a discussion with them, make sure you're covering all the items, you know, all the the things you forgot last time that you added to the list. But the client feels like they actually have a hand in it. They can collaborate and actually customize it for their own, you know, their project.
2: All right,
3: let's do some picks. Curtis, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. I'm going to pick Git Tower 2.0 for those times you actually need to get GUI. Uh, Towers just released it. Their version 1 was really good, uh, and their version 2 looks even better. It has full Git flow. So, that's uh, yeah, it looks really good. I bought it, and there's an upgrade uh, if you have a version 1.0 license. I don't usually use a Git GUI, but it is helpful sometimes digging back through old commits and old stuff to look through and then to stash or to pull those out so you can see a new branch.
1: Cool. Eric, what are your picks? All right, so uh, for years now... Um, I've been using an ergonomic keyboard. The most recent one has been like the Microsoft 4000, which is kind of their big one that they have that's uh, wired and all that. But uh, a couple weeks ago, I bought um, the new Microsoft Sculpt ergonomic keyboard. Um, this is the one where it's wireless. The number pad is actually a separate unit and all that. And I've been using it for a little while, and I've actually finally gotten over the you know how the keys are different, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, not only is it like lighter and you know, easy to use, but it also works with my iPad. Um, it's wireless, but it's not uh, Bluetooth. It's like some proprietary thing, so I have to plug in a USB. So I actually have a lightning adapter, a camera connection kit that has USB, and then my little, you know, the dongle for the keyboard. But it's nice because now I actually have an ergonomic wireless keyboard for my iPad, which is kind of like been my goal for a couple of years now. So I've, I enjoy it. If you're using ergonomic stuff, it's it's a good one to get. It's nice being able to detach the number... Uh, the number keypad, because it lets you bring your mouse closer to the keyboard. So that's my pick.
2: Awesome. Reuven, what are your picks?
0: Okay, so I've got uh, two picks for this week. Uh, one of them is a book. I think the title says it all. The title is Surviving Your Stupid, Stupid Decision to Go to Grad School. Uh, <laughs> 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 and it's written by someone who finished his PhD who decided you know, I could make some money uh selling a book laughing at people who go to grad school to get PhDs. <laughs> so it's actually pretty amusing. It's not like, you know, fall on the floor funny, but it's still pretty good and not inaccurate. Uh, the second thing is, as uh, long-time listeners know, I've been working on uh, my uh, Mandarin Chinese, which is just a fun, fun language to learn. And so a friend of mine recommended a uh, Pimsleur, and they have these recordings and it's based on this scientific method by this professor Pimsler from Princeton from a number of years ago. And I don't know if it would actually work just on its own, but in combination with other techniques, I found it's really surprisingly effective. I would not expect a recording to really be able to get you to learn words and sentence structure as well as it does. And this friend of mine told me that it's especially good for pronunciation, although I'm not convinced that's true. I think I just have a horrible American accent and everything. But, uh, but it's definitely worth it. if you're interested in languages. Uh, they have a, they have a bunch of languages there. It's worth taking a look. Anyway, so those are my picks.
2: Very cool. Um, I've got a couple of picks. I picked up a couple of docking stations for my uh, MacBook Pro. It just seemed like the development went a little smoother on it. And mostly it was because I hated going to the cafe or whatever and having to reset up my laptop after working on my desktop or working on something in the cloud. And then having the connection be so bad that it just couldn't connect to the cloud. So I've moved most of my development onto my laptop. So anyway, so I got the the docking station. I got one, and it's a Belkin. I'll put a link to it in the show notes here in a second. But So there's the Belkin one, and it says it has two Thunderbolt adapters. Just be aware that one of those Thunderbolt adapters is the one that connects to your computer. So you don't get two Thunderbolt adapters for plugging your one into this device. And so I was looking around at some of the other ones, and I wound up getting another one, and uh, it is a, I'll put a link to it in the show notes too. It's about the same, it's a little more expensive, but the thing that I like about it is that it has the same number of USB and everything else connectors. Uh, both of them have the wired Ethernet Adapter on it, which my MacBook Pro actually doesn't. So when I plug it in at home, I get full connectivity through a wire. And the reason I have two is because I have a standing desk. So I can pull the plugs out of it when it's sitting on my desk and then plug it back in on the standing desk. And, you know, I have two monitors over there too. So it just, it hooks up and displays and everything's nice. The other adapter though, the second one, and the reason I like it a little bit more is because it has an HDMI and two Thunderbolts. So while it says you get two Thunderbolts, One of them, again, is dedicated to your laptop, but it has the other Thunderbolt adapter and the HDMI adapter, so I can plug it in and get two monitors with only taking up one Thunderbolt spot on my laptop. So it's been really nice, and then I just... Use the wireless uh, keyboard and mouse or keyboard and trackpad. And yeah, it works pretty nice. So um, I'm going to pick those. And then here in Utah, on the 24th of July, we have a state holiday called Pioneer Day. It's the day that the Mormon pioneers came out of the canyon and Brigham Young said this is the right place. Um, and so they settled in Salt Lake Valley. And incidentally, all around here, including in Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and, uh, Nevada. So a whole bunch of those are originally Mormon settlements. There might be a few in California and there might be a few in like Montana, but I'm not completely sure. Anyway, uh, incidentally, Las Vegas was an originally a Mormon settlement. Side note. Anyway, um, some of my ancestors are among them, and I get a lot of information about them off of familysearch.org. It's a website that's run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormon Church. But the church has an extensive genealogical program, and so if you're interested in genealogy at all, it's free and it's worth looking at to see what they have and it's not just information on your ancestors they actually go through and index records what that means is they'll look at things like army enrollments or you know burial certificates or I mean all kinds of stuff from all over the world uh, they actually go and photograph old church records and then they um they index them meaning that somebody actually goes in and types it in so that it's indexed in a database that you can go look it up in So if you're interested in that, I would definitely go check out FamilySearch. If you want to be part of that work, they do have uh, volunteer indexing. And what it is is you get a program on your computer and you can then read it and you just fill in the fields. And they have this in all kinds of different languages and countries. So if you live inside or outside the U.S., you can uh, definitely get that information. One thing that was interesting that I ran across, and I'm just going to put this uh, out there that was kind of funny, is that it turns out, I had never heard of the town that my wife is from before I married her, but it turns out one of my ancestors actually lived and died in that little town. And it was funny, too, because I was looking at the marriage records, and it showed he's my great-great-grandfather, or great-great-great-grandfather, and so it showed my great-great-great-grandmother. And then a little bit further down, it showed that he married another woman 12 years later. And I was like, wait a minute, she didn't die until like, you know, 50 years later. And then I realized that this was back when the Mormons were practicing polygamy. So I am descended from polygamous. So that's just a funny side note there, you know, there's there's a bunch of stuff there. But anyway, um, so my picks are uh, familysearch.org and familysearch.org slash indexing if you want to help out with indexing. Anyway, that's all I've got. Uh, We are going to be talking to Daniel Pink about the book To Sell as Human here in a couple of weeks. So look forward to that. And besides that, thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com/form.